0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Work Friends podcast where we bring meaningful conversations to you. I'm Jim Brewbaker, and I'm here with my co-host, work and real friend, Ainsley Stanley. This is an episode we need to hear. It is so rich. So get some fresh air, make that recipe your great aunt posted on Facebook, do whatever you need to do and enjoy today's episode.
1: today on the podcast we are starting a two-part conversation with our friend kimberly white kim is a therapist and she's going to chat all about how we can care for others well this is such a timely conversation in the midst of a pandemic where people are really struggling as well as a great addition to our current series where we're chatting all about being good stewards of our health and practical ways we can care for ourselves and others it is honestly a fantastic conversation so enjoy Okay, so Kim, tell us about you, what you do for work,
2: what makes Kim Kim? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think something that is really important to who I am, um, maybe not totally important, but valuable, is that I am actually, I was born and raised in New York, um, and so sometimes when I talk to people or I kind of analyze my personality, I think, well, I am a native New Yorker, so... When I'm doing different things in psychotherapy or as a professor, um, there will be like this New Yorker that sometimes comes out and I have had to um, own that and accept that and kind of learn to love it. Um, I do love being from New York and I have really missed home during this season. Um, and so that, that's something that I'm really proud of as being from New York and where I grew up. I did not think that I would ever end up in Canada. I went to school here. I did my undergrad at Emmanuel Bible College. And while I was there, people kept telling me that I would end up in Canada one day, that God would keep me here. And I told them to never curse me in such a way like that. Um, But here I am in Canada. And so uh, my world was not what I thought it would be. And God really changed my directions. I started out um, pursuing being a missionary and doing intercultural studies and going overseas. And then... Now I am a psychotherapist. um, And so I work with By Peaceful Waters and do counseling um, for individuals, couples, youth, children, kind of you name it. Living in a rural area means that it's kind of the whole range of things. It's not just one thing, but you're doing a lot of different things because you're rural, you're in a rural community. And so there's lots of needs. And so that's been really um, an incredible experience. And then from that uh, I had someone reach out to me once and say, you know, you're a psychotherapist, you have a background in theology. Would you ever be interested in teaching a Bible college course? And I thought, oh my goodness, that would be amazing. Um, and so now I'm a professor. I oversee the counseling department at Emmanuel Bible college and love that. And I get to integrate the two worlds. Um, the psychotherapy part of me gets to do the clinical aspect and I don't get to have the same relationship with my clients, um, that I would with my students, but then my students, I get to disciple and walk with them and journey with them in a different way and helping them as they start off on their counseling journey. And so I love the two worlds. I love being able to do the clinical work with my clients and really sitting in that therapist chair and working with them. And I love being able to disciple and walk with my students as I prepare them to be psychotherapists that care well. And so the integration of both has just been phenomenal. And then in addition to that, I'm also a pastor's wife. And I love that role as well and get to be, um, I'm married to Carter, who is a youth pastor and I get to hang out with youth and we have missed our house being filled with youth. Um, and all of their pop cans left all over the place during this season, (laughs) but those are kind of the things, those are the different hats that I wear, um, on a daily basis, I guess.
0: Why did you decide to go into this profession?
2: That's a great question. And that is a story. Um, I'm a story person. I live stories. And that is a story in and of itself. I grew up going to a camp. um, And one summer, I was able to be a camp counselor at that camp. And it was just a week long camp that was in Connecticut. Um, And we would bring in in a lot of the kids were inner city kids um, from Newark and New York City and the Bronx and areas of that place where they would come to this camp and would be camping in tents in the middle of the woods and canoeing and all of these country kind of things that these inner city kids just could not get wrap their mind around. Um, and I was also an inner city kind of urban kid as well. And so when I grew up there, I just thought it was the coolest thing that people would have bonfires, and we would go canoeing, and we would sleep outside. We did not do those kind of things where we came from. And so I was really excited to be able to kind of be a counselor um, this one week. It was my first year being a counselor. And there was a girl in my cabin who who had a sister that was older than her. And anytime we would see that sister, the girl in my cabin who was younger would actually like attack her. Like not just like a little pat on the shoulder, but would like one time like push her down the hill. And her sister like tumbled (laughs) all the way down. And I was like, what in the world? And the the worst part was that when the sister got up, would just like beat her younger sister for doing that. And I mean, sibling rivalry, I'm a younger sister, so I get it, like wanting your sister's attention, but this was a little bit extreme. And so I pulled the camper aside one day and it was like, okay, what is going on here? Like you see your sister and you don't just like tap her, you like punch her in the head or like kick her in the shin. And she was like, I don't know what you mean. And I was like, you know, this is, that's kind of violent. And it began, this young girl began to tell me the story of how um, she was in foster care now but she had grown up with a mom who was extremely violent. And that was in this young girl's mind she was about nine years old. She had just interpreted that to mean that's what love looked like. That if somebody loved you cause moms are supposed to love you. Moms love you, it's what they do. She'd had heard that all the time. And if mom loved her and mom treated her like that, then that must be how she should show her sister that she loved her as well. And it was just this really, um, just sad, just really terribly sad situation. And this girl had such a distorted view of what love looked like, but then to say to her, well, that's not what love looked like. Like, that's not how you show people you love them was then brought her to the question of, well, what about my mom? Does my mom love me? Because that's how mom always treated us. And I was this, I was probably 18 or 19 at the point and just was beside myself. I was like, I don't know how to tell this girl, like, well, yeah, your mom did love you, but I mean, she shouldn't have hit you. And, you know, and so I was just grappling with it and ended up like the chaplain of the camp came over and one of the nurses came over and there was a guy there, a counselor who was a professional counselor, therapist, and he came and sat with the girl. And and I thought, I want to work with girls like this in the future. Like my heart just broke for her. And the fact that I didn't know how to go further with her, that I just felt hopeless. Like I was like, I don't, I don't know what to say to you made me realize I was like laying in my tent that night. And I was like, I need to get trained. I need to have skills. Like I want to be a social worker was kind of the word that came to mind at my, at that point. And I said, I want to work with young girls like this and their families and help them find hope and healing and, and redefine love in a way that's healthy So that that little girl doesn't grow up and show love to other people in this distorted, broken way that she's received it. And so that was when the first time that I kind of thought, you know what, I want to do this more. And um, and I was probably in I was already in school and I was already doing intercultural pieces. And so I thought that I would work in that intercultural setting with young girls in that way. Um, And it wasn't until later on that I realized even my undergrad wasn't sufficient, that I needed to go on for further education. Uh, to pursue uh, a master's degree in counseling so that I could really sit with with people who have gone through a lot of brokenness and help them find understanding and hope and purpose in the midst of their stories. And so that's really what drew me into this profession.
1: I love that. Um, What a cool story. And just to see uh, younger Kim's heart. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit more today about kind of how to Um, care for people well. Now, obviously, not everyone who listens to this is going to be a therapist doing, you know, counseling for people. But, um, you know, we're surrounded all the time by people who are struggling with all kinds of things, whether big or small. Um, So uh, as we think about this idea of caring well for people, can you talk a little bit about healthy boundaries and what those could be, uh, why they're important, maybe a little bit
2: about what the Bible says about this? Yeah, boundaries are such... It's such an important topic, and and I think boundaries sometimes get a bad rap in the sense that people are like, oh, boundaries, boundaries. It means that I can't like care for anyone or help anyone with anything, or um, or people will say to me, well, they put up boundaries and now I can't even talk to them anymore, and so, and and that's an important thing, and I think that when our boundaries. Oftentimes, when we've had a lack of boundaries, that's when we get to setting these really rigid, really strict boundaries with people that can sometimes be really hurtful. I've I've walked with people who. Um, you know, others have promised them that they're going to be there for them. They're going to help them. Like they're going to take care of them. And then they take on all of these things that that person should never have promised. Those expectations were never legitimate or obtainable. Right. And then when it gets to the place where that person feels burnt out, because that happens, then they say, you know what? I, you can't call me anymore. You can't text me. Like if I want to talk to you, I'll reach out. But oftentimes rigid, really rigid, strict boundaries, are come from a place of us actually have been too like porous before and just absorbing everything kind of like a sponge and so once we can't handle anymore we put in rigid boundaries and so learning how to set healthy boundaries from the beginning um, helps us not get to this place where we're now shunning people or telling people that they're too much to handle but we can actually care for them well and care for ourselves an example i often use is um, if somebody were to call me up and said that they have life and they wanted me to come over and help them de-louse their hair, I would say yes. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, I mean, I'm not petrified of lice, but if someone is, this might not be a good example for you, but I would say yes, but I would not go over there with my hair down and like put my hair near their hair as I'm delousing them. Not a chance. I'm going to put my hair up in like the top knot top knot you could ever have. I'm going to hairspray the living daylights out of it because la- lights do not like greasy hair. They like clean hair. I'm going to wear all white. So if one of those little black things starts crawling on me, I'm going to they're gonna be spotted a mile away, right? I'm gonna take all of these precautions because I'm not gonna take that louse home with me. Like there's not a chance I wanna bring lice into my house. But for some reason, when we're caring for people and it's emotional pain, It's like we sit down next to them and if their emotional pain was lice, we just put our heads next to theirs and we take it on. And we think that somehow us taking home the lice with us is going to help them feel better. Us taking that pain home with us is going to make them feel better. Well, if I'm walking with a friend and that friend like twists their ankle, I'm not going to say, oh my goodness, let me twist my ankle so that you feel better. No, because then we're two people with twisted ankles sitting on the side of the road. And what are we going to do? We're going to have to flag down the car. And imagine if the next person comes and says, oh my gosh, you guys have twisted ankles. I'm going to twist my ankles so that I too will feel what you're feeling. We would never do that with a physical pain or things of that sort. But for some reason with emotional pain, we feel like we need to take it on as if, oh, well, they're really feeling sad or they're feeling anxious. And so I need to feel sad with them, or I need to feel that anxiety, but that's not a good boundary. And so we can come alongside people when they're in crisis, but we don't have to take on the crisis. You know, in in the Bible, it does say um, that we should carry each other's burdens, right? But it also says then later on that each person should do their own tasks. And there's a difference between what it means to carry each other's burdens and then to do things for people. And And I think that sometimes we feel like we need to be a be all and end all for everyone. And that is overwhelming and exhausting. And we're going to burn ourselves out and then not help anyone. But if we're able to say, hey, I'll come alongside you and I'll support you, but you also need to keep moving forward and doing your own things. then it helps us to find a balance between carrying each other's burdens and being there and then doing things for people. And again, there's going to be seasons of life. There's seasons where people are going to need more support than others. Recently, I was in a season where I couldn't even go get my own groceries because I was in isolation, right? Like, no, I didn't need a friend to call me up and say, oh, Kimberly, you need to do that yourself, right? Well, I couldn't, right? And so there are seasons where we will have to tell people in ways that are maybe different or more in depth. But honestly, we need to be aware that other people's burdens are not our own and And when we're sitting with them, we don't have to take that home with us. And if we are, we need to set better self-care routines for ourselves because we would not want to take home someone else's lice. So we're not going to want to take home someone else's anxiety or depression or feelings of being overwhelmed. Um, And so those are important things when it comes to boundaries, realizing that there are limitations to what we can do and what we should be doing. Um, And we can sit with someone, but we don't have to take that home with us because multiple people with sprained ankles aren't going to help anyone. And so just being aware that that's their pain and they're allowed to have it. And this is our experience and we're allowed to have it. We don't have to then take on their pain to be a good friend.
0: Amazing. I'm just sitting here just like soaking it all in. Like one thing at YFC that they really do a good job of training us is exactly that, right? Like an understanding that you are not Jesus, you are not going to save this person, but you can walk alongside this person in a healthy way. And obviously the season that we are in with COVID and isolation and now being in a lockdown in Ontario, how do we care well for people in times when we can't actually see them? Yeah.
2: This has really caused us to have to be creative and step out of our comfort zone when it comes to caring well. I think a lot of times we get caught in this is what it looks like to care well. And so if I can't do that, then I can't care. Right. But there are things that we can do in new new seasons and in unique situations um, where you know, I used to play tennis as a kid, not well at all. But my coach used to always tell me like to stay on my toes, stay on your toes, stay on your toes. And he would always say, Kimberly, you're flat footed. If the ball goes that way, and you're flat footed, it's going to take you a whole two seconds. And I thought, two seconds, what's a big deal? Well, in a tennis match, two seconds is a big deal, right? And and in the caring world, we need to really kind of be always on our toes because if we're flat-footed and we're expecting it to go one way, it's not going to go that way. And so this is a time of learning what it means to be on our toes in the caring profession, to be on our toes as caring people, and what it means to be creative or to think outside of the box. Um, and so Remembering things is a really important part of communication. When I talk about nonverbal communication with students, one of the things that I always bring up is action, how action is a part of nonverbal communication and remembering things is a part of that. If I'm talking to someone and they let me know that um, January 22nd is a difficult day for them and I'm talking to them on January 15th, right, I can put in my phone January 22nd. Hey, I can put their name in. And then on that day, I can send them a text and say, hey, thinking of you today. Or if I'm if I have a girl in my youth group who says, oh, my goodness, this quad master is really difficult. And um, I have an exam on Friday or a test on Friday. That's really going to be overwhelming. And I don't know what to do. Then on Friday, if I send a text in the morning that says, hey, thinking of you, praying for you today, just that thought of I'm being remembered, that people have heard me and now she's reaching out. Um, even I've, I've made uh, Fridays into my, we have this bakery in Listowel that's delicious Impressions Bakery. Shout out to Impressions. Love them. Um, yeah, and, and Impressions Friday has been my new thing during this new lockdown. And so I have a friend that I, I'm very close to and she knows Fridays are Impression Fridays. So yesterday I was like, you know what tomorrow is? And she was like, Impression Friday. I was like, send me your list. And so she knows that on Fridays, I'm going to bring something and drop it on her front steps. And so it just is this reminder of this like little thing along the way. And, and these are just small things that we can't see people in person. We can't run up and give them a hug, but we can remember them. We can think of them earlier in the pandemic at the really beginning part of the pandemic, I had posted something online about like anxiety and how anxiety feels heavier during this season. And. Um, And that was like right at the beginning where I was like, if I go to the grocery store and bring my groceries home, do I need to bleach them all like throw them in a bucket of bleach? Or am I going to get COVID from the packaging on my, you know, bubbly container? And And I had a few days later, I got a package in the mail and I was like, what in the world is this? And a friend of mine that I've known since JK had sent me a book on anxiety and like God's presence in anxiety. And I hadn't even asked, they didn't even give me a heads up. They just saw that I was mentioning anxiety. They knew that this book had been helpful to them and they sent it along. And so throughout this season, there've been times where I'll hear from people or see things and I just send them things like Amazon is so easy to just send things. Right. And so just thinking of people remembering people those little things actually add up and make a huge difference and then we're reminding like we're reminded of i'm not alone i still have people who care about me people are still praying about me people still love me um and so those little things and following up really makes a huge difference so that people feel seen and validated in this season
1: i love that i think that remembering is such a huge thing um And that's something that I try to do that I'm not always that great at. I can be quite forgetful, but I'm always reminded of this one time I met this guy who was not from the area, but I told him that I worked at the drop-in center and he was like, Oh, so-and-so volunteers there. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, they do. And then he starts to tell me all these things that that person's doing. And then I was like, Oh yeah. And then I told him that I was working at this store at the time that I also worked there. And they're like, Oh, so, you know, this girl that works there. And I was like, yeah I do and then he goes on to tell me all the things that this girl is doing and I was like man like I've talked to you like three times and like you're making all these connections and every person that would come up uh he would be like oh and they're you know they're doing this do you know about this decision that they're making right now and he would go into all these things and I was like how do you do this but it was so impressive and I remember like you know he didn't have any deep thoughts about any of those things he was just you know remembering and I was like Wow. And so from that point on, I try my best to remember things about people, you know, even if it's just their name, and then people are like, wait, what, you remembered that? It's just like, yeah, and it's hard. So it definitely takes intention to remember those things. But I think that it's a really powerful tool that um, I learned because someone did it to me. And I was so impressed that I wanted to be just like them. But I think that's really cool. Um, What's important to know about ourselves before we walk with someone through a difficult
2: season? It's important to know a lot of things about ourselves. Um, if you were to ask any of my students what I push the hardest in classes, it would probably be this topic, this sense of we need to know ourselves and our weaknesses and our strengths, but really our weaknesses before we can walk with other people. There is such an importance of knowing our own journeys and where we've come from before we're engaging with others. And and what I mean by that is even the stories we have of what are okay emotions to feel and what aren't. Um, Because if I was raised in a place where there was no room for anger, if I was raised in a household where if anger showed up, I was sent to my room, until anger was gone, then if I'm walking with someone who's feeling angry about things, I'm going to shut them down because I'm not okay with anger. And I probably am not going to know it cognitively, right? It's going to be this unconscious conscious thing that I'm going to push because I don't feel comfortable with anger. I'm not going to let someone else. But if anyone's lived through 2020, there have been justifiable reasons to feel anger at times, right? I mean, anger is not a bad emotion. It gets a bad rap. Um, In the counseling world, we kind of call it a secondary emotion. Anger often shows up because of other things, other vulnerability, brokenness, sadness, rejection. Anger shows up almost as as like big brother, big sister kind of fighting. I'm going to fight for the pieces of me that feel vulnerable or sad or broken. And so if we have been raised in a mindset of anger is bad, then when we see it, we're going to shut it down. But really what we're doing is we're shutting down the ability to then go even deeper and see what's underneath the anger. And so Knowing our own emotions, knowing our own experiences of emotions, knowing our own weaknesses helps us realize that sometimes we're not going to be able to go as far with people as we want to go because of our own limitations or barriers. And then when that happens, we're going to blame it on the other person because, oh, well, they're not changing enough or they haven't gone, they haven't done enough. But really it's our own barriers that we can't even see that are preventing us from taking that next step with someone. And so we need to know our own, our own self. We need to know, um, you know, our history, where we've come from. I think of Pete Scazzaro, who does the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Program. And he makes, like, he goes through churches, with churches through these genograms of their family histories and looks at patterns and um, values and just like things that are showing up throughout different generations. And he says, these are things that are in you that when you're walking as a disciple-making person are going to come out. And I love how he's really broken that down because our past is going to influence the filters and the lens we view the future through, whether or not we want to acknowledge it or not. And so when we dismiss it or we pretend like that doesn't matter, we just don't even go there, it limits our ability to go further with people and step into uncomfortable places where we might not have felt safe with that. You know, if questioning God is something that you were taught is not okay, and then you're coming alongside a teenager who's questioning God, which I mean, a lot of teenagers have lots of really great questions about God, and you're coming alongside that person, and there are these questions about God, you might not feel safe to go there with them because you never were told that that was okay. And so all of these things actually dictate our ability to sit with people in the muck, in the mud of their lives because. We don't feel comfortable, but if we're not aware that it's our own discomfort, we'll blame it on the people that are around us and tell them that they're doing something wrong or they're, they're not a good enough Christian or they don't love God enough or they don't have their emotions under control, but really it's our own stuff. And so knowing our own stuff doesn't get it out of the way because our own stuff's always going to show up. But when it shows up, we can go, oh, this is my stuff. This isn't their stuff. I can't put this on them. This is actually me. So I'm going to make a mental note of this and I'm going to call my mentor. I'm going to call my friend or I'm going to call someone that I'm journeying with and I'm going to chat this through with them afterwards while I also create space for this person to go through their own things. And so, again, that gives us the ability to differentiate what's my own stuff that comes up when we're journeying with people and what's someone else's stuff. Because if we're not aware of what our own stuff is, it often gets muddled together. And then we're blaming things on someone else that's actually our own stuff that the other person has no control over.
0: This is not in the script. I said I was sticking to it, but we're veering off a little bit. Um, In light of that, for somebody who's hearing this for the first time, practically speaking, how would you encourage them to get to know themselves better?
2: Yeah, that's a fabulous question. Because unfortunately, if you were to ask people on a scale of 1 to 10, how self-aware are you? I think a majority of people would say 8, 9, or 10, even though they might be a 2. And so self-awareness is just something we think we are because we've lived with ourselves. We feel like we know ourselves. We know our stuff. But then if you were to ask a bunch of people who just recently got married how self-aware their new spouse was, they might give them a really low grade, right? Because they're like, wow, this person does not know their stuff at all. Like they don't even know what they're doing. And, and so relationships is a really great place to learn and to gain self-awareness. And I don't mean relationships where people kind of... Um, pamper us or make us feel good about ourselves. If you don't have people in your life who have asked you hard questions or who are willing to point things out, then the relationship you have is actually not going to be helpful for self-awareness. There is this tendency where we surround ourselves with people who agree with us. And if you're someone who when you look at all of your friends have the same opinion, you're like, "Man, everyone I am friends with has the same opinion and they're all as woke as I am, then you're probably not as woke as you think you are because you've surrounded yourself with like-minded people who aren't challenging you or who aren't going to kind of push back on things that you say. And they're not, and you're not gonna push back on things that other people are saying because everyone's as woke as you are. And so having relationships with people who come from a different perspective as you, who um, have different understandings, different life experiences, who are willing to say, hey, I really value you as a person, but I actually am going to push back and challenge that opinion that you just shared. Not because I think you're a terrible person, but because I want to create dialogue. It's going to help us create self-awareness. Um, different kind of feedback. I mean, in in my courses at manual, I have all of my students do these feedback things all the time, and they're often having to ask people for feedback and you know, and I tell them that if the feedback is all things that they agree with and they value in themselves and find someone else to give them feedback, because that person is not being honest, they're just telling the person what they want to hear. But having honest relationships, mentoring relationships where people will speak truth to you. um, There's this thing online, and it's called the implicit association test. And it's through Harvard University. And it's basically this test that you take that finds out what your impl- implicit associations are. So like your first kind of thoughts about something. And so what it does, it is has like a good, bad category. And if you're wanting to do something for like, let's say ageism, right? It has like elderly people and then young people and then good words and bad words. Um, like good words would be like happy, bad words would be like angry, not like bad words, right? But you have to like categorize them and, and put them into different things. And it tests how quickly it takes you to do that. And if you can like if you're easily putting together young people with good words quickly, but when it comes to young people or young people with negative words or old people with positive words, and it takes you a little bit longer, that implicit bias, then it's going to say that you have an, like a slight leaning towards valuing younger people over older people. And, and Malcolm Gladwell talks about this test and he talks about taking it, especially when it comes to race. And, it, and for him personally, he said that his came up with he had a slight leaning towards appreciating white people more than black people, which Malcolm Gladwell thought was crazy because he's half Jamaican. Um, And so, but again, it's just this thing that it gives you a better understanding of maybe implicit biases that you have, whether or not you're aware of them, but just these quick judgmental, like judgment pieces that we make Because if we really believe that we're fully self-aware, we're probably the least self-aware people there are. And so bringing along people that are going to challenge you, doing tests like that, doing feedback and having people like really give you feedback, um, looking at some of the derailers of ministry or in life and saying, are any of these derailers present within my life gives us space to continue to grow in our self-awareness. And we're never gonna be fully self-aware, but the more self-awareness we gain, the better we are to then journey with other people because we're not gonna be bringing our own stuff into it as much. Um, And I think a really good sign of someone who is becoming more self-aware is someone who's able to acknowledge errors and mistakes. If we struggle to admit mistakes or to not apologize, um, and when I mean apologize, I mean, not apologize to avoid mis- to avoid punishment. Sometimes we apologize because we don't want a punishment. We don't want to have to do something or chore or make restitution and not apologizing so that we get something out of it. Sometimes we apologize so that people will be our friend again, or that, you know, um, we won't lose our reputation, whatever that means. I mean, apologizing because we acknowledge that we have harmed someone else and we want to fully own that. If we're able to do that, it means that we're becoming more self-aware because we're able to realize this isn't about me. It's about this other person. But when that defensiveness shows up, when we kind of, um, you know, buck at the thought of having to own our own stuff, it shows that there's still this weakness of self-awareness because we're still struggling to feel like we can understand ourselves and we're aware of ourselves and that doesn't define who we are, but we're still kind of feeling like, no, this is a definition of who I am and I'm not that person. And, and it's just this sign that there's probably something underlying that's not healthy. And so things like the implicit association test through Harvard online, it's a totally free test, um, or, good, healthy relationships or people who have different opinions than you are surrounding you and speaking into your life. All of those things are really great places to start.
0: Again, I'm just soaking this all in. I'm just like sitting on the edge of my seat, like listening, Um, switching gears a little bit. What do you now know that you wish you had known when you were younger? When I was younger, it
2: would often be said, if somebody was battling anxiety, it would, people would say, oh, they're an anxious person, or they're a depressed person, or they're a mentally ill person. And as a young girl, I thought, oh my gosh, I never want to become an anxious person, because if I'm an anxious person, then I'm bound by anxiety. And the first time I ever experienced anxiety, I was petrified, because I thought, am I now an anxious person? And as I've grown and as I've studied anxiety and I've worked with people, I realize that our identity is not the mental health situation we're in at that time or the, the emotional experience. Um, it's not who we are. And, and I mean, we would quickly say, well, that person's a happy person or they're a joyful person. And, you know, they're a person who experiences those things. But when it comes to these more heavy emotions, labeling someone as that, as their definition, I find it actually then becomes who they live out, who they become. And so even when I was younger, I remember there were moments when I was shy and my parents would say, You don't have a shy bone in your body, Kimberly. You are not a shy person. And so then when I was in moments where I felt shy, I thought, I can't be shy because I'm not a shy person, right? And again, it was a sense of, and maybe it made me step out of my comfort zone more often and not be shy in situations because I thought I'm not allowed to be shy because I'm not a shy person. But we become defined by these, these things that are spoken over us and they become narratives that we then live out. When I worked with girls who were leaving um, sex trafficking in the sex trade, one of the things I would have them do often is design the shoes that have been put in front of them. And what I mean by that is that saying, if you want to get to know someone, walk a mile in their shoes. But unfortunately, the identity piece of of an anxious person or whatever it would be becomes shoes that are forced onto someone. And so these shoes are not the shoes that you were designed to walk in. God did not design these to be the shoes you walk out your life in, but they become the shoes that people have walked in. And so I'll sit with these girls who have left the sex trade or left sex trafficking, um, whether it was by their own choice or whether they were forced into it, or there was a, there was a sense of they had no other option, but they feel like they made that choice themselves. If there's all those kind of narratives around it, but, I would say can you show me the shoes that other people have put on you that you've been walking in and they'll design these shoes sometimes just verbally but other times they'll draw it out and and they'll put words in it that are horrible words that have been spoken over them and that's the identity they've been walking in and i say to them what would it feel like to take those shoes off and say these shoes were never designed for me to walk in and put the shoes that have been designed for you to walk in. What shoe has God created for you to walk in, right? And some of them just say, you know what? God's created me to go barefoot. Like, I am barefooting it all the way. And And I'm like, that's great. You know, we don't have to put on a shoe. But when we speak things over people like, oh, well, she's an anxious person, then we begin to kind of create these shoes of anxiety and say, you have to walk in this. Well, you're an anxious person, so you need to walk in this shoe. And they don't fit. It's like the evil stepsisters trying to put on Cinderella's shoe. Like It doesn't fit. That's not who we were created to be. And yet society has shoved our feet into these shoes and now say, walk. And it's not comfortable and it's not freeing and it's not Empowering, it's actually disempowering. Where I think it was supposed to empower people to say, Well, it's okay that you're experiencing anxiety because you're an anxious person. But instead, it's kind of backfired. And now we feel stuck in those identity pieces. And so, if I could go back, I think I would tell my younger self, You know, if you have moments of anxiety, that's totally okay it doesn't mean that you're an anxious person. It means you're a person experiencing anxiety and you're a person battling it. And it's not within you because if it's who I am battling. It's just battling myself, which causes us to feel like we can't, how can I fight something that's within me, but it's something outside of me that's impacting me. Then it gives me permission to fight back and to invite others into my experience and fight back with me. And so that was something that, um, I think I know that I wish my younger self would have known because then I wouldn't have internalized so many of those things and thought that was my definition of who I was and my identity, but I could have known my identity is who I am in Christ where all of these other things are struggles that I'm facing, which are totally legitimate and valid and okay to experience, but they don't have to become who I am or my definition. And so that's something that I think was really um really just kind of blew my mind when I began to wrap my mind around that. And as I journey with others, it's something that has really been a a place of freedom for people to say, oh my goodness, just because I'm battling anxiety, doesn't mean I'm an anxious person or I'm doomed to this for the rest of my life. Um, But actually I can be a person who's experiencing this and I can fight back and have freedom to be in this moment and also to not be in it in the future.
1: well that
2: was the
1: amazing first part of our two-part conversation with kimberly white we hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Make sure that you're subscribed on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you don't miss next week's episode as well as upcoming episodes, which we release every single Monday. Also, if you want to stay updated on more things about The Work Friends as well as get access to some of the resources mentioned in this episode and others, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Just Work friends. So until next time, have a good one.